Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, the very first playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. Season one is republishing the long-lost first episodes of the show from back in 2007. And season two begins the new episodes. Now, a few things have changed since 2007, like the website. For more information about Theatrically Speaking or my other podcasts, please visit actualstorypodcasting.com. Next, back in 2007, you could number your episodes however you like, and I did this very creative numbering system that included episodes 4.1, 4.15, 4.2, and no actual episode 4. The numbering that the episodes have in your feed is the order that you should listen to them. So, welcome in to the Theatrically Speaking Wayback Machine. It's time to talk some plays. I hate movies, I don't watch TV, I can't read books, and I don't take kids to the zoo. Video games are gonna rot your brain, and all these internets are for idiots. But I love you, baby, dear, but you ain't no Shakespeare. Try to make me to be high class, and I would David Bam on your ass. How you doing? This is Theatrically Speaking, almost a playwriting podcast, episode 5.1. My name is Jonah Knight, and I am your host. I bring you this show because I do, and because it is fun. I'm joined today by my dog, Watson, who is there, and uh, he may walk around and make some noise, and my dog, Moxie, who is over there. Um, They may do something. I thought it would be interesting. Normally, we're in a different room. I thought I'd try this today. Um... And that'll be something else that will probably not impact this at all. But you should know, I suppose. Before we get started, a couple of things. Firstly, just an update. Uh, nothing big and significant with this, but I mentioned last time about the Google Ads thing. And you know that I'm, that I'm interested in this whole process of podcasting and all this uh, web stuff that's happening out there. So quick update. As of right now, I have had 18,000 and almost 300 impressions of the Google ad uh, and 12 click-throughs. 12 people have clicked on my Google ad and found their way to the website. That is fun. Um, For those 12 click-throughs, I have paid just under two bucks I'm all right with that. That's kind of funny. Uh, just in case you're interesting, what actually happens um, with these with these click-throughs? The most common uh, keyword that people have been clicking on is theater, followed by uh, podcast. Uh, so that's kind of cool. That's interesting. Anyway, I don't know how much it affects all of this, but um, but if you have if you dear listener, have clicked on a Google ad, found yourself at my website, and then subscribed to the podcast, let me know. I'm interested. If you have found your way here through one of the, uh, the, the blogs out there that are, that are very kind and um, mentioning this show, uh, let me know. I'm interested, kind of interested. You can send me an email at jonah at jonahofthesea.com. Visit the website, uh, jonahofthesea.com. Uh, and you can also look on Facebook and... Um, that other thing called MySpace. Uh, that's all fun. You can do that. All right. Okay. 
So with this episode, 5.1, I'm starting a new series. It's going to be intermittent and not all in a row, because that's what intermittent means, uh, that I will come back to periodically when I... Uh, when when inspiration strikes and the theme of the five point series is going to be playwrights that have left a significant mark on the theater industry uh the theater world people that no matter how much we try we just can't get away from them Uh, and i am interested in hearing from you guys about this who are these playwrights that you think have have seriously affected this industry? People that have left so much inspiration behind for those of us that are writing today. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to clarify this a little bit. Uh, I, what I'm thinking here is that there are playwrights that have that have changed the foundation and changed the structure of this whole industry. And then there are playwrights that are just, you know, pretty good. Uh, and so let's say that, for example, Tony Kushner is, is by all accounts, a pretty good playwright. Uh, though, I would argue that to date, he has not shook the foundation of the theater industry. Uh, certainly, Angels in America is a great piece of writing, though he's not followed that up with similar writings that are as groundbreaking or memorable. And uh, he may at some point, but it's still pretty. It's still pretty new. And after Angels in America, the result of that writing has not then gone on to affect what we are all writing now. Perhaps twenty, fifty years, uh, folks then are going to look back and say, "Well, of course, Tony Kushner is the most influential playwright." But right now, I don't think he is. So he is not, for example, one of the playwrights that I will be talking about in this series. What I'm going to follow this episode with next week is a, is a new series, I believe, in three parts where I'm going to be talking about how to write the incorporation of technical requirements into your script. Uh, so that is going to be coming up next. But for now, we're going to kick off 5.1 with a look at Samuel Beckett, Mr. Beckett, Beckett and his plays. I think that uh, I think we can safely say that Beckett has left a mark on theater, uh, and I've I've done a little bit of research here, uh, something that I don't typically do, but I intend to do it for this this uh, this playwright series because I think it's also very important to have context about the people that we are talking about. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna go through some of this now. Samuel Beckett, Mr. Beckett, was born in April of 1906. He died in December of 1989. Good haul there, Sam. Lived primarily in his early years in Ireland, though um, there is some debate as to whether or not he was... He he didn't... From Ireland, but didn't really think of himself as Irish. His family had moved around a bit. Um, They came from France. They were perhaps Hungarian at some point or other though grew up primarily in Ireland after uh you know hitting his uh his 20s or so did some traveling he taught at Trinity College for a while uh throughout the 20s into the 30s he he taught he wrote some he traveled through Europe uh, pretty extensively and then found himself 
1939, settling down in Paris because uh, because he had some you know some old family stuff going on there, and through his travels, he felt an uh, an affinity to Paris and to the French people. So he found himself there. 1938. 1938. What was going on in Europe in the late 30s, early 40s? Interestingly enough, probably no coincidence here, uh, but the World War II, the World War II, broke out in 1939, lasted to 1945. Did, uh... Did France have anything to do with World War II? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, that's right. Paris was occupied by the Nazis. Forgot about that. Uh, well, Beckett didn't forget about that. <laughs> uh, so around early 40s, um, around the time when Paris and France was invaded, Beckett found himself joining the French resistance. He worked with the underground. He did, he did a lot of things uh, over the course of, of his time uh, in world working with working with his involvement in World War II, how World War II shaped him, everything from uh, being pretty active in moving supplies to just uh, sort of storage uh, and uh, you know helping helping pass information, helping um, members of the underground um, hide out uh, from the Nazis who were looking for them. He did a lot. He found himself in um, you know at that point they were working in sort of like a cells. Uh, the the resistance was set up in little groups around around Europe at the time. Uh, one of the cells that Beckett was involved in found itself being infiltrated by a traitor, who um, and that whole process led to the death of many of his friends. He did manage to get out of that, of course. Um, and then, of course, the the war ended. The war ended in about forty five. They say, if you believe the historians. Um, and uh, and so Paris, as you imagine, having gone through World War II, put up with a lot of crap, uh, and and that's just putting it mildly. So many people were killed, so many people murdered. This was a time and a place where nobody came out unaffected and unchanged. Uh, and Beckett, of course, was a writer. He began his writing career much earlier when he was a, a student, when he was a teacher. He's uh, he had. A series of published um, pieces of fiction, some prose, some uh, a couple novels, and short stories, and that sort of thing. Primarily through the '30s during the war, there was uh, he did he did sort of maintain uh, a writing a minor writing habit, uh, and he said that that was primarily just to keep his head there because you know as a writer you can't just stop. Uh, and so that was sort of his approach through World War II, by all accounts. Um, okay, fast forward a little bit. Let's talk about the year 1952. 1952, over here in the United States, what was going on? Here's some context. Um, winner of Best Picture that year was Greatest Show on Earth. Singing in the Rain was released in 1952. Abbott and Costello, as well as Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, both those comedy teams released three feature films in 1952. Top of the Pops, Rosemary Clooney, Hank Williams had Your Cheatin' Heart, uh, Jambalaya on the Bayou was out. 
Um, Eddie Fisher, of course, um, kind of cast a huge shadow on all these people with his albums, uh, Christmas with Eddie Fisher and Eddie Fisher Sings, um, classics that remain to this day. Television, American Bandstand, 1952. The Today Show came out in 1952. Ozzy and Harriet, 1952. 1952, Waiting for Godot. Okay. All right. So, Waiting for Godot. If you are unfamiliar with this play, you are unfamiliar with Samuel Beckett, and I highly recommend that you check this out because as someone who is, you've probably at least heard of this play. Even if you haven't had a chance to read it, haven't had a chance to go see it. Waiting for Godot is is, I think, probably one of the most important plays, certainly, of last century, uh, and probably at, probably forever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say probably forever. If you look at a single work, uh, a single piece of theatrical writing, Waiting for Godot is, is, is way up there. It's one of the tops. Does that mean that everybody loves it? Does that mean that it is a, an enthralling piece of art and entertainment for the whole family? No, no, not at all. There are a lot of people that don't like this play. In fact, when it w- first came out, 1952, 1953, 1954, as it was getting its legs, getting produced around through Europe into the United States, let's say that it had a mixed reaction. Uh, Now, there are conflicting reports here. Some people say that it was universally all bad reviews and got panned from the beginning. Some people refute that and say, no, 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 it's not that it got bad reviews. It got okay reviews here and there, but uh, even with okay reviews, certainly wasn't making a lot of money. Okay, so how did it get to be popular? What the hell was going on there? Okay, so so, uh, Beckett, right? Here's this guy, French Underground. He's a writer. He's watched friends get murdered. He's watched uh, his adopted country get destroyed, get bulldozed, get run under by tanks, Nazis running around, um, all that going on. He's a writer. He's a writer. What is he going to write? What do you write when you go through that experience? You write Waiting for Godot. And Waiting for Godot... Two main characters. Uh, Waiting for Godot has been described in a a number of different ways. Um, Probably my favorite review, the one that gets thrown around a lot, says that this is a play in which nothing happens twice. Nothing happens in the first act. Nothing happens in the second act. And maybe that is true. Uh, I think that is true. I think that is true if you are looking for plot points. If you are looking for character growth and character development, if you are looking for all of these things that I have been talking about on this podcast, if you are looking for all of these things that are taught in playwriting classes and you'll read about in books, then Waiting for Godot is going to break those rules. It absolutely does. But that is a play that if you lived Samuel Beckett's life, that is what you have in you. Because these are characters that have been crushed, that have been destroyed, that have no life anymore. They're, they're dead and they don't know it. They, are, they have nothing to do but wait. And they're waiting for this guy. They're waiting for Godot, who is someone that neither of them know. Neither of them know if indeed he's coming. They were told that he was coming. And there's nothing they can do but wait for the arrival of this person who can somehow give them meaning, 
somehow pull them up and give their life some some impetus some some movement that is that i believe is absolutely the experience that you're going to get if you if you go through the things that beckett has gone through and that's great and all and and because he didn't feel the need to give us active character development because he wasn't doing the sorts of, of, of realism. He wasn't doing musical theater. He wasn't doing this stuff that was popular because early 50s, especially over in the United States, but through uh, good chunks of pockets of Europe, people are looking to try to get out of this World War II mentality. They're trying to find some escapism. They're trying to... I don't know, find find some some way to get over this. And and Godot is a reminder that there are, there are there's a huge chunk of the population that is not over this and that cannot be over this. And sure, these days if we if we as writers with all of our influences, with all of uh different types of media and storytelling that are going on now, if we're trying to get that across, perhaps we would fall back on some other sorts of conventions like guns and violence and profanity and sex and, and all kinds of things. Um, and instead, what he did with this play was he gave us utter desolation and he gave us these two characters that could not go forward, that all they could do was wait. That's all they could do. So that is huge, and that, I believe, is monumentally important. One of the ways, and one of the things that I'm going to do as I, ta- as I go through this series on playwrights, is I'm going to take a look at that context of their life and then try to weave it into how that has affected us right now as playwrights. I've taught some. I've, uh, I've taught some creative writing. I've taught some playwriting, some, um, some screenwriting, and all that sort of thing, uh, and and certainly from being in classes myself and from being in workshops, Waiting for Godot and Samuel Beckett's work after World War II, his theatrical work today for contemporary playwrights, I believe, has no context. When you look at people that are in playwriting classes now, and they could be high school, they could be college, they could be adults going back because they want to write plays. They don't get the context for waiting for Godot. They don't know what Samuel Beckett has gone through. Yeah, he lived a while ago, uh, and he did some stuff. But, you know, um, O'Neill lived a while ago, and Shakespeare lived a while ago, and all these people, yeah. Um, uh, and you know, So, so, so they, what they don't have, they, they see this, the success of this play. And certainly, after a while there people began to realize what Godot was about. And not necessarily in the initial run, in the initial performances, but later on it certainly got legs, and it certainly became popular and, and certainly made a bunch of money for, for, uh, for Mr. Beckett. And contemporary playwrights will see that. They will see that there is this successful piece of writing called Waiting for Godot, and a couple of of possible sequels or plays in the same vein, uh, Crap's Last Tape and Endgame, these plays that are dealing with the same type of subject matter uh, in different ways, 
people that are stuck, people that can't progress, people that can't move forward. And when done well, when, when produced, these are, these are totally, entirely captivating, brilliant pieces. And when they're not done very well, they're absolute misery to sit through because you don't see anything that Beckett put in there. If, if the director doesn't know the context, if the actors don't know the context, if the designers are just trying to do pretty and they don't know, they, they don't really get these plays... It's it's horrible. It's horrible. And you guys have probably seen some of those productions, and I've seen one of those productions. I've seen good productions as well. Uh, unfortunately, people tend to see the bad ones first. So they're writing. These playwrights are writing, and, they're, and they come into these classes, and you say, nothing's going on in your play. You got these college students that are sitting there talking about something. Maybe it's probably about sex. It might be about how I'm gay. Or it might be about how the Bush administration's evil. Or it might be about whatever I'm pissed off about today. And you say, but there's no plot. There's no development. It's just conversation. And these kids, these, these kids will come back with, well, what about Waiting for Godot? Nothing happens in Waiting for Godot. And what should happen at that point is the teacher of the class should hit that kid should smack him in the face, uh, and uh, possibly with a book, but possibly with something like, let me tell you about World War II, kid. Let me, you know, you go, if you're, (laughs) it's about context. It's about how playwrights that are coming up today and people who work in theater and people who are directing and designing and acting and writing don't understand what these playwrights have gone through, don't understand what Beckett has gone through. And that is, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. All of the misconceptions about Waiting for Godot stem from the fact that people have no idea what Samuel Beckett went through in his life. And I think at this point, I'm sort of becoming a broken record on that. Yeah. So, so this is how I think he has left his mark. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, the legacy, the contemporary right now legacy of Samuel Beckett is that Waiting for Godot is an excuse used by bad writers. Because Beckett did it, why can't I? Beckett didn't have character growth, why do I have to have character growth? He didn't have a whole lot of plot development going on in Godot or Endgame. Why should I? I can do that too. And then they get through their playwriting classes and they get out into the world and they wonder why nobody's producing their plays. If you are an educator, if you deal with people who are writers, please, please, please don't put up with the Beckett excuse. Don't put up with the Godot excuse. And perhaps that means that when we do teach these classes, perhaps it means that we need to do something more. Perhaps it's not enough just to say, here are your writing exercises. Go do them and you'll be fine. You did a great, you know, uh, you you got that thing where you were thinking of uh, alternative uh, settings to put your play and you came up with under the bed and under the bed is great. Perhaps that's not enough. Perhaps. Just throwing that out there. That's it for this one. A little bit shorter than some of the others, but I think that's about it. I think that perhaps these playwriting uh, episodes are going to be about that. 
Uh, I hope this was interesting for you. Uh, This is something that you could probably guess has been going through my head for quite some time. If you have similar opinions on any playwrights, uh, anybody who has left a significant mark in theater, please email me. Let me know about it. Uh, I can talk about it on podcasts. I can read your emails. I can put you up on the blog if you want to do that. Um, Jonah at JonahOfTheSea.com is the email www.jonahofthesea.com is the website uh, MySpace, Facebook all that kind of stuff at any rate I hope you're doing well and I will talk at you later